Open. Our uh, scripture reading this morning comes from the, the Gospel of Mark, and so I invite you to turn there uh, with me. Mark chapter eight. It's on uh, page eight forty-four of the Bible in the pew. And Mark chapter eight. We'll begin reading at verse uh, thirty-one, and we'll read down to verse one of the ninth chapter. Last time. Uh, Here in the uh, Gospel of Mark, we came to that uh, critical point, it would seem, uh, in the uh, the Gospel, uh, where the Lord Jesus directly uh, asks uh, his disciples uh, what they believe about him. And, uh, of course, we read last time of that confession of the Apostle Peter, you are the Christ, you are the Anointed One, uh, you are the, the King, you are the one we have been... Uh, expecting, and so we had this wonderful uh, confession of faith, and we were reminded that, of course, this is the most important question anyone will ever answer: who is who is Jesus? And so we left it at a uh, a wonderful high point of confession of who Jesus is, and then we continue to read in the Word of God in Mark eight, uh, verse thirty-one, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter uh, took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, uh, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death Uh, until they see the kingdom of God uh, after it has come uh, with power. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray uh, for his help. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would be at work in us and among us, uh, both that the uh, one who preaches would preach uh, faithfully and whatever is not of you would would fall to the ground. But Lord, then for all of us who hear your word today, that what is of you would find its home and in a heart uh, receptive to the truth, that that truth even today would set us free. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, It's said that uh, in a particular cemetery uh, in the state of Indiana, there is a tombstone uh, that is well over a hundred years old uh, that bears this inscription, Pause, stranger, when you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, 
so you will be, so prepare for death and follow me. And the uh, story's told, that an unknown passerby had read those words and placed a reply below them. To follow you, I'm not content until I know uh, which way you went. The passerby, of course, was right uh, that the most important thing, really, about death uh, is what follows. What follows. Now, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here about death in Mark chapter 8. He's wanting to prepare them uh, for the certain day that is approaching. And he tells them not only about his death, but what will follow afterward, uh, his resurrection. Uh, he began to, uh, to teach them that the Son of Man, verse 31, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He began to teach them. In other words, there was much more that the Lord Jesus was going to teach uh, before that time of death was going to come. And we know this isn't the only time, wouldn't be the only time Jesus would speak to his followers about the certain death uh, that he would have to face. Uh, in the Gospel of John, for instance, Jesus is speaking to one of the religious leaders of the day, Nicodemus, uh, when he tells him, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And Nicodemus uh, would have had no difficulty understanding what Jesus meant. Because the words lifted up uh, meant only one thing in the Roman Empire in the common language of the day. Uh, meant only one thing. Lifted up on a cross. The, uh, uh, the worst form of, of punishment that Rome had devised to be crucified on the cross, to be lifted up, just like in the early uh, uh, 20th century, perhaps in, in America, gangsters would, uh, or at least on television anyway, use the language of someone being rubbed out or uh, someone being liquidated. Uh, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Uh, that's how this term would have been understood uh, in the Rome, uh, Roman Empire at this, at this time. It all means the same thing. Death is coming. And uh, this was God's plan uh, for Jesus right from the beginning, we find here, because Jesus tells his disciples this must be, uh, it is necessary, it wasn't a mistake, it wasn't uh, unexpected, it didn't take God by surprise, it didn't take Jesus by surprise, it wasn't the result of a failure on the part of Jesus to win over the Jews, it wasn't a plan B, it wasn't a sad and tragic end to what had been the high hopes of a great ministry, um, it was what must happen, it was in fact God's plan uh, from all eternity. And there would come a time, of course, in the life of the Apostle Peter, uh, when we read that first letter of Peter, where, where he, would, he would understand that. 1 Peter 1.18, Peter writes, knowing that you, he's talking to the church, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So Peter would get it one day. But throughout the scriptures, 
we're reminded of the fact that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It is necessary, Jesus says, this rejection and suffering and death. It's necessary uh, that blood be shed. And uh, there's no lack of Bible passages to uh, tell us that when Jesus was celebrating the Last Supper with his disciples, he said, this is the new covenant in my, in my blood. In 1 John 1, we read that if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Hebrews 10 reminds us we have confidence to enter the most holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus. And in Revelation 12, we're told the saints of God overcome the great dragon Satan by the blood of the Lamb. And so in Ephesians 1, immediately after speaking of the fact that God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, we hear that it is in Christ that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so that's all over the pages of Scripture. You must die. Shed blood must be, must be shed. The cross was part of the plan from the beginning. Christ must suffer, die, and rise again. Now here's the thing. Jesus is here then in Mark 8 beginning to reveal that plan uh, to his closest friends, uh, to those whom he had called to be with him so that he would be able to send them out. So he's revealing what's going to happen. He's he's pouring out his heart to them uh, of what is coming. And he speaks to them about the cross that he was going to have to bear. But we know two things here about this revelation. We're just going to look at these first couple of verses this week and then follow up with the rest of this passage next week. Uh, but we noticed a, a couple things. First of all, that there are, there are objections uh, to the suffering of the Savior. There are, and there is in this passage, an objection uh, to the cross. And Peter's response is not what we would expect. And he began to teach them that Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, openly, without uh, holding anything back. And Peter, the Bible says, took him aside uh, and began to uh, rebuke him at this revelation. The Gospel of Matthew records a little more of the conversation of what Peter said. Far be it from you, Lord... Uh, This shall never happen to you. Peter uh, was sure that this must have been some kind, some kind of mistake. He was so sure, in fact, that Jesus must be wrong on this one. The Bible says that he uh, rebukes Jesus. Uh, It's a very uh, strong word. It means to censure severely. To restrain somebody. Peter wanted to restrain Jesus, to hold him back. He didn't want him to go down that path at all. He rebuked Jesus. Now, as you're sitting there um, this morning, you might be thinking, wow, you know, I might make a lot of mistakes uh, in in my Christian life. My life may not be what I would want it to be. Sometimes I do really bad, uh, not so smart things, but who of us would be willing to take Jesus aside and say, hold on here, Lord, Uh, you're just plain wrong on this one. I know you've said this, but this will never happen to you. Don't go there. Well, 
not so fast. You say, well, how, you know, we would never, surely I would never rebuke Jesus and say, never, Lord. Uh, well, every time you or I question the Bible, the revealed word of the sovereign God, every time I do that, whether it's on, well, God, you didn't really create the world in six days. I can't. Never. I mean, that can't, that can't be. Or, made us male and female. But, Lord, you know, we live in the 21st century in the United States of America. How can that be? Or, Lord, you have ordained that uh, godly men are to lead in their, in their home and in the church. Lord, after all the, the feminist movement in the 20th century, I mean, how? That can't be. Never. Uh, or, Lord, you've told us that, you know, children are, are a blessing. They're not a burden. They're a reward from you. But really, they cost a lot of money. So we're not going to have any. Uh, or, Lord, um, I know you've said, you know, this is, I know it's etched in stone uh, that uh, we are to honor the Sabbath day as holy. I know that, Lord, but really? There's, there's just so much other things. I could do. We question. We rebuke the plain, open teaching of the Lord. So don't be too hard on Peter. He rebuked Jesus. Uh, this cannot be what you've just said, Jesus. That's what Peter was doing. Jesus had begun to talk about suffering many things. He was talking about being rejected and being killed, and the Bible says he told the disciples plainly about all this. He was open with them. He was revealing to them what God had planned for their salvation, for their redemption. And he was opening his heart to them and speaking of the terrible things that he would have to face in the near future. And he was speaking to them about the reality of the cross and God's plan for their salvation. But Peter, the Bible says, takes Jesus aside to set him straight, to correct him to rebuke him, to restrain him. Now, what was Peter possibly thinking? Well, maybe he thought that Jesus was just depressed and discouraged and uh, thinking about a worst-case scenario. That could be. Uh, why did Peter object to what Jesus was saying? Why did Peter object to the cross? What was going on in his, in his mind? A uh, former uh, professor at... Princeton Seminary in the 19th century, Joseph uh, Alexander, wrote this. The effect upon Peter, though denounced by some as improbable and inconsistent with his previous confession, remember, you are the Christ, is one of the most, said Alexander, natural and lifelike incidents recorded in the scriptures. Alexander says, well, this makes sense, actually, how Peter responds. Peter, affectionate and ardent, but capricious and precipitate, uh, precipitate uh, does things before you should, really. He could not have betrayed his own infirmity in one act more completely than in that recorded here by Mark. But when we take into consideration all the circumstances of Peter and the disciples, transport ourselves into the midst of them, as this is happening, as Peter was surrounded by them, we may see that the extraordinary scene presented in this passage... Although one which no fictitious writer would have dreamed of, 
and which could not be the fruit of any mythical process. In other words, this is real history, he's saying. What apostle who's trying to make up a religion would include this? And remember, uh, you know, we believe that uh, Mark probably got, all, got his information from Peter, the apostle. Uh, and writes Alexander, though, though, you know, it couldn't possibly happen. It's nevertheless exquisitely true to nature, both to that of man in general and to that of Peter in particular. In other words, he says, you can't make this scene up. Um, it, you know, this, this, is, this is real life. This is, what, this is human nature that Jesus says this. There's going to be suffering and I'm going to die. And, and it's, no, Lord. Never. Because we, we do, we shrink back from suffering from the cost of following the Lord. The cost of, of, of discipleship. Was Peter perhaps afraid that if Jesus was going to suffer and die, maybe as a follower of Jesus, that's what his future was going to be like. And Peter simply can't see how such a defeat, suffering and death, I mean, how could that possibly bring success in the work of God that he knew Jesus had come to accomplish? You are the Christ. You are the King. How could this possibly be the path? He didn't want to think of the cross because he believed that the cross could be avoided. He did not want to think of Jesus suffering and being killed because he pictured Jesus in power and glory. And it wasn't until after Christ's death and resurrection that Peter learned that the only way to the power and glory of life with Christ is through the suffering and death and sacrifice of the cross. If we would reign with him, we must die with him. This is what the Apostle Paul confessed in his letter to the church in Galatia. Galatians 2.20, Paul said this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the confession of a Christian. I have been crucified with Christ. The life I now live is not me. It's actually Christ in me. But first I had to die. Something needs to die. Before we truly live. There have been others who have uh, echoed Peter's objection to what Jesus reveals here as the plan of God for our salvation. Even after the cross, there are those who object to such a view uh, of our salvation that it requires the blood and sacrifice of the Son of God. This must happen, says Jesus. People today would want us to believe that Christ's death was uh, perhaps known by God in advance, but certainly not planned by him. It was a murder that was never uh, planned on. It was an unfortunate accident, some might say, in the history of the world, but yet something that we can learn from, seeing as an example of, an example of a great sacrifice. He, he was unjustly put to death, but certainly not part of any plan of God. Plan. Purpose. Can't be that. Uh, I was at a uh, history conference yesterday uh, in Virginia, uh, discussing the, the causes, hearing men discuss the causes of the Civil War. 
And uh, there were four different well-known speakers at this event, and I think every one of them at some point during their presentation, thinking about the causes of the war, uh, said something along the lines of, um, we must avoid at all costs that, um, that this war was somehow foreordained. There's just, there's no, at all costs, we've got to get away from that. Uh, why? We have to protect, they said, human freedom, human contingency, human freedom. Because that's what, uh, that's what we're, we're all about. There can be no sense in which, in which what, what's happening here has been uh, ordained in any sense whatsoever. But far from being simply an accident on the stage of history, this cross, Jesus is saying to Peter and his disciples, is the main event uh, of all time. It's the center from which all history uh, takes its cue. Isaiah 53 says it was the Lord's will to crush him. Acts 2.23 says Jesus would be handed over by the predetermined plan of God. The cross was part of God's plan from the beginning. Others, of course, object to the bloodiness of the cross. They rightly remind us that the cross is the demonstration of God's love. On the cross, God's love was never more clearly shown. Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's true. Jesus' death on the cross is the perfect example of love, of self-sacrificing love. But it's not only that. It is not simply a nice picture of love that Jesus is talking about here to Peter. We rightly remember the verse from Romans 5.8 that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there it is. Uh, he's demonstrating his love. But then we forget the verse that immediately follows, which, which goes like this. Since therefore we, now, uh, since therefore, uh, we have now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. Yes, God demonstrates his own love for us. Now, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's what's happening. That's why Jesus has to go to the cross. That's why there has to be uh, the cross. He's dealing with the Father's wrath against our sin. Paul would say, I desired to know and decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Peter's thinking in Mark 8 that the cross is avoidable. That Jesus reminds him just how unavoidable the cross really is. And Jesus reminds him that God's plan for our salvation centers in the cross and what happens at the cross and that the road to salvation cannot be diverted uh, away from the cross and that, in fact, there's only one way to be reconciled to God at all and that is to travel the road of the cross and any attempt to avoid the cross, whether in history or in your life, and to teach others to, to do the same. That is, to, to seek to avoid the cross. Is, says Jesus, the work of the enemy of God. 
And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. No suffering, no death. But turning, verse 33, and seeing his disciples, and facing away, Peter rebuked him, restrained him, and turns and, and sees Peter, but he sees all the disciples, and, and all the disciples have just heard what Peter said. May it never be, Lord. This will never happen to you. And he sees them. And turning and seeing his disciples, he, he rebuked Peter. Same word. Censured, severely, restrained, held back, and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus virtually takes Peter by the scruff of the neck here and speaks to him in a way uh, that he nowhere speaks to anyone else. He turns, sees the disciples witnessing what Peter had said. Peter sought to rebuke Jesus, but Jesus instead rebukes him. Peter thought he needed to set Jesus straight, but Jesus sets the record straight with Peter. Peter had some words of advice for Jesus about how he thought it was best for Jesus to go about his work of bringing salvation to the lost. But Jesus has some words for Peter about how his words were actually uh, aimed at diverting Christ from accomplishing that very salvation. It's, it's, it's as if Jesus is saying to Peter, 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 what are you thinking? What are you thinking about what it means to be a follower of me? And the amazing thing about this passage is this. It was only one paragraph earlier. <laughs> Uh-oh. Only one paragraph earlier where Peter had made the great confession on behalf of the other disciples that Jesus was, in fact, the very Christ of God, the anointed, the Messiah. He knew he was the king. Still wasn't, you know, whether prophet and priest was fitting in there. Obviously, priest, he didn't have a hold of. But he made this great confession. And it's immediately after that confession, that spiritual victory, we could say, that the same lips... Could this be? The same lips that confessed the Christ were now being used as an instrument of the enemy. This is a great illustration, I think, of um, what Martin Luther expressed when he was speaking of the fact that Christians are, uh, in Latin it goes, Christians are still simul justus et peccator. They are at one and the same time, uh, saints and sinners. Still. Uh, yes, great confession. But what Jesus is pointing out uh, here is that we're, we are never, in one sense, we are never more vulnerable to the darts and temptations of the enemy of Satan as when you've just had a great uh, spiritual victory. We can at least say that. When you've expressed your faith most firmly... Watch for the enemy. When you've read God's word and prayed, watch for the temptation to sin. That will come quickly. When you've left the worship service, gone to the hall for fellowship, after coming out of a praise and worship of the Lord, and you go back to the fellowship hall, watch out for temptations to sin in, in word 
as you're talking with somebody over coffee. How easy, how easy it is. But Jesus here, Jesus saw that what Peter was expressing by his desire to avoid, to have Jesus avoid the cross. Here's the thing. Was the same temptation that Jesus himself faced in the wilderness before he began his ministry from Satan himself. Remember? You don't need to go to the cross. Satan said to Jesus, just bow down and worship me. You can have all the kingdoms of the world. You can turn these stones into bread. You know, throw yourself down from the temple. You know, the Bible says angels will catch you. And uh, all you got to do is, is listen to me. You know, bow to me. Uh, you don't need to go to the cross. You can take your authority and power. Use it right now. That's what Peter is doing by seeking to avoid the cross. Having Jesus uh, avoid the cross. Do it another way. That, says Jesus, is the enemy at work. Peter objected to Christ's description of what would happen to him because it didn't sound like the best way to accomplish what Peter had in mind. Suffering and rejection and death. That doesn't sound like the way to, to build a kingdom. Notice here, Peter seems to be neglecting the resurrection. What follows death as we often do. All he can think about is this world and only the difficulty. There must, he thought, be another way. There must be another way. There must be another way to have peace and happiness in life without the cross of Christ. There must be a nicer way. There must be a cleaner way. There must be a, a way to achieve the goal without, without talking about uh, somehow uh, death, which the Bible says must come. Because there is wrath of God against sin. There must be another way for me to live my life and be loved by God without the demands of living for Him and telling others about Him and suffering for it. There must be another way to heaven besides uh, the way of giving up everything to follow Christ. Surely, maybe Peter might have said, surely when I survey uh, the wondrous cross, it really doesn't demand my soul, my life, my all. Is that what it is that what you're saying? Jesus, surely not. There's got to be a different way of having peace. Surely following Jesus doesn't actually mean that I need to sacrifice anything to be a Christian. Like my time or energy or reputation or resources. Uh, surely this can't be. Peter knew, friends, that if this would be true of Jesus, uh, what about his followers? That doesn't seem to be the American way, you know, suffering uh, and death. I remember many years ago, I won't name the company, but uh, I remember when I was in seminary and we had friends that were looking for jobs. And I heard of one friend, I think, who got a job at a company in, uh, in uh, Michigan uh, somewhere. And... Uh, and somewhere they went to some kind of a, a pep talk or pep rally for, for operatives of this, of this business and uh, this advertising business. And uh, it was a professedly Christian business. And uh, in their desire for, uh, for growth, they told their uh, representatives who were to sell things on their behalf, said, well, if you, um, you know, as you get into this business, maybe you want 
uh, maybe you want to own a, like a Ferrari at some time, and so what you got to do is you take a you take a picture of that Ferrari, and uh, uh, as a Christian now, you take a picture of that Ferrari and and you put a picture of it on your fridge, and you just keep telling yourself that you know God's gonna God's gonna give you that Ferrari, uh, God's gonna give you that car, and, and then you go to work, and God's gonna give that to you because God's about blessing you with all these things. There's got to be an easier way than the cross. More comfortable way. More convenient way. Less demanding way. There must be a way to avoid the cross. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. The thought that you can avoid the cross, that I can avoid the cross, that you as my followers could avoid the cross is the work of the enemy of God. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. The things of men. The things of of this world. You're only looking, says Jesus to Peter, at the human side. You process everything from a human perspective rather than from God's perspective. What does that lead to? Well, it leads to this, that this life is all there is. That's the human perspective. Um, What's God's perspective? Well, this life is but preparatory to eternity. And that, yes, though there there must be the cross, uh, the cross is what secures uh, eternal life for his people. That's why the Bible elsewhere says, take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. So that we would have not in mind the things of men, but in fact the things of God. But if you have in mind the things of God, friends, you cannot possibly set aside the cross. Because to avoid the cross for Christ would mean that salvation would be forever kept from us. Jesus went to the cross in order that we might be redeemed, the Bible says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus did not avoid the cross because he knew that to do so would mean the giving up of our only hope of salvation. Jesus went directly to the cross. He did not turn to the right or to the left. He went straight there, knowing that it was the place that God had planned beforehand for him to be, where the wrath of God against against, uh, sinners would be poured out upon Jesus, and he would absorb that wrath of God against all our sin, so that we might, through faith in him, uh, be set free from judgment and punishment. For that sin. Jesus had in mind the things of God. The wonderful thing is that, of course, Peter himself would come to see. Uh, it would be a difficult road for Peter, as you know, from the rest of the scripture. But when Jesus did die on the cross and when he did rise again from the dead, Peter's eyes would be opened and he would become a fearless uh, proclaimer of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he would write things like this, for instance, in 1 Peter 
For Christ, now think about him here in this place in Mark 8, and listen to what he says later. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He came to see that, that, no, Jesus had to go to the cross so that we might be brought to God. And he would say this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. This is him speaking to us now today. And you and me. Beloved, do not be surprised like I was at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But, says this same Peter, rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Oh, he would come to see that there is no glory, no glory for Jesus, no glory for Christians without first going to the cross where all our sin is paid for. And the wrath of God is poured out upon Jesus rather than upon us. And Peter says, oh, don't be surprised when you suffer for being a Christian. You're sharing in Christ's sufferings. Remember the glory that will be revealed. And so, friends, today, simply, we need to ask ourselves, have I been avoiding the cross. Have I been objecting to the cross? What have I been thinking about the cross? Friends, you and I must go to that cross. Jesus calls us to come to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He calls us, as our hymn tells us, to come just as we are. That one plea but that his blood was shed for me. And if we're seeking to avoid the cross, Jesus says, avoid dealing with the cross, avoid uh, understanding that uh, Jesus had to go there. Why? He had to go there because of my sin. And if I'm trying to avoid that, avoid dealing with Jesus dying in my place at the cross. That's the, that's the work of the enemy. Satan does not want you to think about the cross of Jesus Christ. Because if you do, <laughs> for any length of time, uh, you will understand why he's there. And you will see your own sin. You will see his love. And you cannot help but worship him. And Satan does not want you to worship Jesus. And so if he can keep you from thinking about the cross, thinking about it had to be, thinking about it that it had to be because of you, had to be because of me, oh, that's, that's his work. But the Christian is, goes to the cross, sees the Savior there in my place, and then offers that Savior all we have in worship and adoration of his name. In the opening pages of Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, Pilgrim is seen walking through the world with a great burden, of course, as you know, on his back and in his hands a book. And 
reading as he goes, now and again, you hear him say, what shall I do? What shall I do? What shall I do with this uh, burden on my back? He enters through the wicked gate. He hears interpreter explain to him the love and grace of God in Christ. And he sends Pilgrim on the way. And the interpreter says to him, you will come to a little hill. Stop. Look up when you get there. So when Pilgrim came to that place where the little hill was, he stops, he looks up, and he saw three crosses on the hill. And Bunyan writes, as he looked, the burden fell off his back, rolled down the hill, and as he turned to watch, it rolled and rolled until it disappeared in an open grave. And he saw it no more. And he was free from the burden of a sin. Why avoid the cross? It's the only place where you and I receive what we truly need. A payment for sin. A sacrifice only Jesus can offer. An atonement you and I could never make ourselves. Peter knew it because he tells you and I today he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. Peter came to see. May we see the necessity, the beauty, the glory of the cross of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we pray that even this morning you would help us, Lord, to have eyes to see the glory uh, of the cross. Lord, there's so many ways that... Um, that we, in our own lives, would seek to avoid uh, dealing with that cross or excuses we might, we might make. Uh, so, Heavenly Father, we pray today that uh, you would help us, as you helped Peter so graciously in his life, to come uh, to see that the Lord Jesus was on the road to the cross as the only road, the only path for Peter's own salvation, for Peter's own redemption. That Peter himself might die to sin and live to righteousness instead of avoiding the cross, that he would come to glory in the cross. And so, Lord, we pray that that would be true of us today, too, to glory in the cross of the Lord Jesus. For it's there where we find our Savior, our Redeemer, and our King. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.